news. And then I learned to love business. Some are born to greatness. Others have it thrust upon them. For Catherine Graham, it was perhaps both. Hers was a privileged childhood under the canopy of her father's investing empire. But the family passion was born when he spent $800,000 on a struggling, financially strapped newspaper, the Washington Post. Eventually, it was passed not to Catherine, but to her husband, Phil. Her father reasoned that no man should be put in the position of working for his wife. But when the brilliant but troubled Phil Graham committed suicide in 1963, Catherine Graham pushed through a long-held sense of inadequacy to take over the most important paper in the world's most important city. In those days, women were second-class citizens, and we all thought we were inferior. We were inferior. Um, I mean, our position was inferior. And so that made you feel insecure. And also my personality did. She learned on the job, often the only woman around. Small wonder many began to suggest she was the most powerful woman in town. And that's how Catherine Graham was remembered in March 2002, a few months after her death. That video presentation plus tributes at the First Amendment Awards Dinner. In this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly, we remember Catherine Graham by learning from her, specifically her leadership secrets, the personal skills that brought the legendary Washington Post executive great media and corporate success, and the enormous respect she still has today. But let's be honest. Great leadership, great leadership is a rare and elusive quality, composed as it is of so many different attributes that must come together at the same time. Intelligence, courage, high standards, personal presence, the ability to communicate, among others. I've thought about leadership a lot during the course of this long career at the Washington Post and a lifetime in this city seeing presidents and other high officials come and go. Looking back, I've concluded that leaders seem to fall into three groups. Some people plan to be leaders. Some people are born to be leaders. And others have to learn on the job. That was Catherine Graham addressing and inspiring high school students on March 13, 1998. She also told the students this. As I look back over my long career, I realized that leadership for me had three requirements that anyone can master, whether male or female. First, you have to have values, strongly held beliefs that guide you and govern you and are signposts to the future. People have to know where you stand. In my case, I was fortunate to learn values from my parents. They always stressed the importance of work and giving back to the community. And at the post, quality, integrity, and high professional standards. Second, you have to find the best people you can to work with and delegate to them as much autonomy as possible. And then they'll make you look good. Finally, leadership requires vigilance, hard work, and abhorrence of complacency and self-satisfaction, and a willingness to make changes when changes are needed, no matter how painful they may be. Hard work and persistence, hanging in there when things get tough, may be a prosaic leadership skill, but it may be the most important one of all, caring about what you're doing. On February 7, 1997, Catherine Graham spoke to students at the Columbia School of Journalism. She focused on women's place in journalism. I discovered I'd brought along as baggage to my new job 
a lot of unhelpful traditional feminine traits in those days. Not only my feelings of inadequacy, but also a desire to please and a reluctance to give orders, to say, okay, I've heard everybody now, I think we should do this. I thought I had to get everyone's agreement before moving ahead. I wasn't even aware that I was condescended to, not only because I was ignorant and inexperienced as an executive, which I was, but more often simply because I was a woman. It took years to figure all this out, to recognize discrimination and overcome it, and to become a capable executive. I had to learn how to relate to people in a business environment. I had to learn to be decisive, to hear people out, then make the decision. I had to learn not not to agonize over every mistake, something I confess I still tend to do. I really maybe think there is, or there was, some sexual difference in agonizing over mistakes. I think women do really worry about them and lie awake thinking, oh God, why did I do that? And men say, whoops, on to the next one. (laughs) One of my early surprises was finding I had become a role model. Even though I arrived at my job by accident in the right genes, it helped young women to know there was one of them at the top, though I was, o- I was the only one for a long time. Seven years earlier, on November 11, 1990, she was the keynote speaker at the Courage and Journalism Awards sponsored by the International Women's Media Foundation. In her remarks, Catherine Graham showed remarkable insight into what the future of media would look like, as if she had a crystal ball well before the Internet dominated our lives. The biggest transformation on the horizon is likely to be increasing interaction between one medium and another, and between viewers and what appears on the screen. Today, it's not unusual to find an article in the Washington Post ending with a telephone number the reader can call to hear more information on the subject via digital voice. Last February, the Post launched a 24-hour telephone hotline offering stock quotes, sports scores, and other information. The service is now generating calls at the rate of 4.5 million a year. Videotech services, though still a long way from success in this country, allow users to choose not only the kind of information, but also the level of detail they want to receive. Systems now being tested could give viewers the capability of choosing which segments of the evening newscast they want to watch. And they could elect to receive more in-depth coverage of the topic if they wanted. We've always thought of television as a passive medium, but today's viewer may be tomorrow's armchair news director. In short, technology has expanded our resources, broadened our horizons, liberated our airways, increased our options, changed our world, and made our our job a whole lot tougher and more challenging. You've heard clips from Catherine Graham giving speeches, but public speaking was not natural or easy for her. In January 1997, she appeared on C-SPAN discussing her new autobiography, Personal History. The book won the 1998 Pulitzer Prize for Autobiography. The Pulitzer Committee recognized it as an extraordinary, frank, honest, and generous book by one of America's most famous and admired women. On C-SPAN's book notes, the second stop in her book tour 25 years ago, Catherine Graham described overcoming her fear of public speaking. You say that when you first got to 
to the post and were in charge that, that you were petrified about speaking? Couldn't open my mouth. I had to practice in front of the children the first year I was working at the paper. I was asked to go down and say Merry Christmas to the company lunch. And I literally, my children are hilarious, they keep telling this story. I practiced making this speech saying Merry Christmas in front of the children because I'd never said anything in public to even my children lined up in a row. That same story was told by her daughter at a funeral service. From Catherine Graham's July 23, 2001 funeral at the National Cathedral, here's her daughter, Lally Weymouth. It's true <laughs> that in the very beginning, she used to practice her speech to the Washington Post Christmas party over and over again in our bedroom and make us listen to Merry Christmas. But ultimately, she found her voice, as many of you know, and through the years, she grew into the woman and the leader you are all familiar with. When Catherine Graham died, senators and members of Congress offered floor tributes. On July 17, 2001, the day she died, then-Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, Democrat from South Dakota, quoted from her book. We are so fortunate that in what would be the last years of her life, she took time to sit down and write an incredible story that had largely gone untold. Her story. In recalling her sudden ascendancy as president of the Post, she remarked, What I essentially did was to put one foot in front of the other, shut my eyes, and step off the ledge. The surprise was that I landed on my feet. For those who know her, for those who loved her, for those who were simply lucky enough to have met her and seen her work, Catherine Graham's success seems no surprise at all. She was a woman of remarkable insight and remarkable strength. A week later, another senator offered a floor tribute. Democrat from Florida, Bob Graham. Does that last name sound familiar? It should. Catherine Graham was buried next to her husband, Philip Graham. Philip was the half-brother of Senator Bob Graham. So Senator Graham had this memory of Catherine Graham from being personally related for much of his life. Compromise is not uh, a sign of weakness. It is a sign of the strength of our unique form of government. Uh, Kay believed in this in her own personal behavior. Uh, if you've been fortunate enough to have uh, dinner uh, at her table, uh, there were, were a number of rules that were expected of her guest. One of those rules was that you didn't engage in a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with the people that might be seated to your left or to your right, but rather that the whole table was encouraged to bring the conversation to the center so that everyone would share uh, what was being said. And by that sharing, the level of the conversation would be elevated uh, and the value uh, would be uh, enhanced. Uh, she was a strong believer in encouraging uh, effective participatory discussions which would lead to those compromises and in turn lead to policies that would enhance uh, our society. And now a bonus clip. One thing we haven't talked about in this podcast is Watergate, and that's on purpose. Catherine Graham presided over the Washington Post as it reported on the Watergate scandal, which eventually led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. But in her words, the paper didn't bring down Richard Nixon, the Constitution did. 
Here's what she told the museum on June 12, 1997, marking the 25th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Yes, well, I, I always try to emphasize that the role the Post played, you know, sometimes people accuse us of, quote, bringing down a president, which, of course, we didn't do and shouldn't have done. Um, the processes that caused his resignation were constitutional. It was the grand jury, the court, Judge Sirica, who I think hasn't been discussed enough here, who really was very responsible for the way things went. And, of course, in the end, the Congressional Committee. Um, What the Post did and the press did was to keep the story alive in those summer months through the election, in fact, I guess till about January, um, when they were trying to hush it up, and they were really pulling all the stops to hush it up. It was very tough in those months. That's it for this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly. A reminder, you can do your own searches in the C-SPAN video library. Just go to cspan.org and use the search bar on top. Find many more speeches by Catherine Graham and by other legendary Washington Post figures, like her editor during the Watergate years, Ben Bradley, plus other coverage of the history of the Washington Post. The C-SPAN podcast, The Weekly. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Thanks for listening and happy searching. Thank you.